1812, in the Manchester settlement of Vermont, a local man named Russell Colvin mysteriously vanished, and despite extensive searches, no trace of him was ever found. Years later, rumours began to circulate that Russell had been murdered and buried in a cellar on a piece of local farmland. Ghosts were seen, arrests were made, confessions witnessed and convictions completed, all before Colvin strolled back into town, dashing the whole thing against the rocks and creating a case that would go on to be remembered for well over a century as the Manchester Mystery. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 7, Episode 10. I'm your host, Ben, as always. It's fantastic to be back. I hope this episode finds you well. Today, we're going to be looking at the interesting, plot-twisting, winding case of Russell Colvin. And to be honest, we can probably just jump straight into it. I don't think there's any big news to share at the moment. So, yeah, let's just go. Let's get on with it. This episode is Russell Colvin's Return from the Dead. First settled during the 1760s on 42 square miles of land, Manchester, Vermont, was a sprawling settlement nestled in a long valley and surrounded by the picturesque equinox and green mountains that made it an attractive destination with a strong feeling of isolation. Despite its location being on both the main north to south and east to west stagecoach lines, the Battenkill River, flowing through the eastern side of the valley, provided an important source of power for the mills and distillery that worked in the industrial area of Manchester Centre, one of the two main hubs in the settlement that housed around 200 residents, the other being Manchester Village, the largest residential hub in the town where most of the settlement's elites resided along with around 30 stores and taverns and all the town's public and official buildings like the post office and courthouse. The rest of the settlement's 1,300 citizens live spread out across the valley in small rural agricultural and farming communities which collectively made up the majority of the town's economy. In the early 18th century, Manchester had something of a reputation for being a rough and rowdy crowd. From its very earliest days, and especially after the American Revolutionary War, the settlement had been a refuge for radical liberals and free thinkers, whose demeanours could just as easily be interpreted as rough, undisciplined and irreligious, especially given the common disregard for religious practice during the Sabbath, with most people choosing instead to spend the day drinking. In fact, this was pretty much like the rest of the week, with drinking being a pretty big deal in early Manchester. One of the three main pastimes, drinking often went hand in hand with the other two, gambling and visiting brothels. Not that the town was an entirely unlawful place, for those who strayed from the legal path, flogging and forehead branding were punishments regularly exercised by the local enforcement. All of this was until the 1790s, when a new class of elites began filtering into the town, settling in Manchester Village, complete with a degree of high education and even higher moral guidance. They were business owners, tavern landlords and hotel owners who saw the landscape around Manchester and sought an opportunity to create a more refined community that could cater to outsiders as something of a destination for relaxation and recuperation. Robert Pierpoint was one newcomer to the town with lofty morals, founding a tavern and disallowing gambling and drunkenness on his premises. Likewise, Israel Roach also purchased a tavern and followed Pierpoint's lead. 
East of Manchester Village, on the banks of the Battenkill, stood the Bourne Farm. The Bournes were one of the rural families living in the satellite communities, having taken up residence in Manchester within the first few years of its founding. Barney and Elizabeth were second-generation Manchester, and the heads of the family who lived on the Bourne Farm, along with their daughter, Sarah, more commonly known as Sally, her husband, Russell Colvin, and their six children. Barney and Elizabeth's other children had all grown up and moved out into the local area, including Jesse and Stephen, who often laboured on the family farm. Russell and Sally's situation living with the Bournes was not really ideal. Russell had always been considered a bit of a simple man, with many having classed him as deranged, a reputation that was not helped after he had tried to burn down a barn. And when his father had walked off and left the family to fend for themselves in 1798, and Russell had turned of age a year later, the town officials took control of the Colvin family farm from under him in order to protect it from the ruin that they assumed he would bring upon it. This left Russell with very few prospects for the future and very little ability to support his new wife, Sally Bourne, and their first son, Lewis. And so, with precious other options, the couple moved in with Sally's parents, much to the chagrin of some of Sally's brothers, particularly Jesse and Stephen, who thought that Russell was a work-shy parasite who didn't pay his way and that the couple were leeching from their parents, especially given the large number of children that they continued to produce over the next 10 years living under their roof. Though it's unlikely that he would ever admit it himself, Russell Colvin had lucked out somewhat with his marriage to Sally Bourne. The Bourne family were a relatively well-respected and well-off family that were well settled in Manchester, with the first generation being amongst the earliest settlers of the town. Over the years, they had served roles on official committees and supported the installation of the Baptist Church, completed in 1781, and although subsequent generations had slowly backed away from the town politics, the Bournes were, in general, still a comfortable middling family. For someone from the relatively poor Colvin family, with so few prospects, to marry into such a family was probably the best chance Russell had at any sort of prosperity, a fact that both Jesse and Stephen were all too aware of especially since, as far as they were concerned, it was at their parents, and therefore their inheritances, expense. It was many of these matters that were the subject of a raging argument that had broken out on the morning of May 10th, 1812, in the middle of a field on the Bourne farm that would prove to be a fateful quarrel, kicking off a saga that would continue for almost ten years. May 10th, 1812 was a clear, crisp spring day in Manchester. Jesse and Stephen were out with Russell and his ten-year-old son, Lewis, gathering stones from a field on the Bourne farm to the south of the Bourne household, at the foot of the Green Mountains, just over the small stream that sprung from the Battenkill, locally known as Bourne Brook. That morning, Thomas Johnson, a neighbour to the Bournes, had been visiting an acquaintance nearby Manchester village and was trekking back home when he heard raised voices that sounded as if they were having a heated argument coming from the direction of the Bournes. Unable to make out exactly who the voices were, or what they were saying, he shrugged the disturbance off and continued heading for home. But when he arrived back on his own farm, he noticed that if anything, the voices had only gotten louder, and they certainly weren't sounding any less angry. Slipping back onto the Bourne farm, Johnson shrunk into a wooded area and made his way towards the voices, hiding himself away behind a large tree where he looked over the field. Here, he could easily make out that the argument going on was between the two youngest-born children, Stephen and Jesse, 
and their brother-in-law, Russell. And it soon became apparent that Stephen was accusing Russell of not pulling his weight around the family farm, sponging off of Stephen's parents and not earning his keep. The argument had been raging for some time, before it finally burst into a flurry of violence as Russell picked a stick up off the ground and swung it towards Stephen, who, retaliating, grabbed a broken branch and swung it back, cracking Russell around the head and sending him to the floor. Johnson saw Lewis running off in the direction of the Bourne farmhouse before he himself turned away from the quarrel and headed home, leaving the image of Russell on the floor, Stephen hovering over him, long branch raised, etched into his mind. Five days after the quarrel, after Sally had returned home from one of her frequent trips out of town, she asked Lewis where his father was. Ordinarily, his reply of, gone to hell, might make most people somewhat concerned. But Sally didn't seem to worry too much. In fact, she didn't really seem to care about her husband's absence at all. And as the days ticked by, with no sign of him anywhere, she only seemed to worry less. Sally Bourne had always been seen as a bit of a loose cannon by the locals. Her brothers Stephen and Jesse had always been seen as somewhat reckless and wild, and some said they were prone to quarrelsome behaviour. But Sally stumped them both when she was unceremoniously thrown out of the church for living contrary to the rules of the gospel. An independent young woman, she had developed friendships outside of Manchester very soon after her marriage to Russell, and frequently she spent time away from the family. The fact that the Bourne brothers themselves considered her one of the devil's unaccountable women, it seems unlikely that the friendships were entirely wholesome. And that nail was firmly driven home when she fell pregnant 11 months after Russell's disappearance. It may have been that her marriage with Russell was simply just not that great. Or it may have been the fact that Russell was known to wander off on his own at times. That no one really seemed to pay much mind to his absence in the town. Once, Russell had left Manchester for almost nine months whilst he wandered up to Rhode Island in search of his runaway father. Some just assumed that these things ran in the family. Russell's father had wandered off and left his family behind, so maybe it was just a case of like father, like son. And so the days, weeks, months, and eventually years passed by with no sign of Russell Colvin's return and no seeming concern for his absence by the vast majority of the town. Naturally, people did make casual inquiries, but Stephen had always maintained that he had simply run away. Jesse told people a few times that he thought Russell had signed up to fight as a soldier, though that explanation seemed to run out of steam after other men who had enlisted as soldiers all began returning home. For the most part, though, people just accepted the explanations without question, or simply they just did not really care. There were a few people that had some suspicions concerning Russell's vanishing. His sister Clarissa was adamant that in the past, whenever Russell had gone off wandering, he had always kept her in the loop and he had always told her of his plans. But this time, she had not heard anything from him before he went missing, nor any time that he was missing. Thomas Johnson, who had witnessed the argument and fight on the morning that he had gone missing, was also somewhat suspicious. And then there was William Bourne, Stephen and Jesse's cousin, and William Wyman, another neighbour to the Bourne farm, Both men had overheard Stephen talking in the weeks prior to Russell's disappearance and on both occasions, Stephen had not sounded very friendly. In William Bourne's case, he had been talking to Stephen about his sister and brother-in-law when Stephen had said that he wished both of them dead and that he would kick them into hell if he burnt his legs off. In William Wyman's case, 
He had overheard Stephen complaining about the amount of children that Sally and Russell had been having whilst living under his parents' roof, draining money that could go to himself or his other brothers and sisters. And with some venom, he suggested that if he didn't stop having children, he would put a stop to it himself. Even with these suspicions, however, no one really seemed to mind too much about Russell's prolonged absence. In 1814, Russell Colvin's mother died and the rent from the Colvin farm, previously taken under control by the town officials and leased out to a tenant farmer, was directed to Barney Bourne in order to help the Bourne family pay for Russell and Sally's children. This was a helpful solution, especially since one year later, in 1815, after four years of Russell's absence, Sally found herself pregnant once again, once more after one of her out-of-town excursions. It was an interesting situation for Sally, and one that would prove to have long-reaching outcomes. Sally sought to swear the child, a process that would allow her to gain financial support from the town, provided that she named the father. There was a hitch with this plan, however, in that Sally needed to officially be considered a widow, as the money could not go to help support an illegitimate child. Sally went to see a lawyer with hopes of starting the proceedings against the father before she found out about this small snag, and when she realised that she would be unable to move ahead, she went straight to Stephen and Jesse to complain about the situation. Curiously, upon hearing of his sister's woes, Stephen told her that she could swear the child anyway, since Russell was dead and he knew it for sure. Whether or not it was in efforts to help Sally secure financial support, he began mentioning Russell being dead all around the town, dropping it into conversation here and there. Jesse was slightly less forthcoming and he told Sally that she would be fine to swear the child, but, he warned her ominously, she would not do it if she had her brother's best interests at heart. That year had been a busy year at the Bournes. Barney had sold a small eight-acre patch of land that included the field that Russell, Lewis and Stephen and Jesse had been collecting stones on back on the day of Russell's disappearance. Barney had been doing more butchering than farming recently and decided to take the $128 cash for his unused land, which included a field, a barn, and the stone foundations and cellar of an old farmhouse in one corner. Within a few months of the transaction taking place, the barn burnt down in an arson attack carried out by Rufus Colvin, Lewis's younger brother and one of Russell's children still living at the Bourne farmhouse. Several months later, Johnson, who had been pruning an apple tree that had been growing within the cellar ruins on his new field, was thrown for a loop one morning when he found the tree completely removed from the field. The ground in the cellar seemed recently disturbed, but no tree was to be found anywhere. A few weeks later, Johnson's children returned home after playing in the old Bourne field and they handed their father a mouldy old hat that they had found out by the burnt-out barn. Johnson recognised it at once as Russell's hat that he had been wearing on the day of the argument with Stephen and Jesse, though he didn't give it too much thought and he shrugged it off. Up until now, most people had either not really cared very much about Russell's unexplained absence or just accepted the Bourne brothers' explanations. But now, there were some people beginning to talk. Upon discovering the news that Russell's hat had been found over on Johnson's field, his sister, Clarissa, who had already harboured some doubts that Russell had simply walked off into the woods, now began to talk openly about her suspicions that something else was afoot. Russell was not a man that went about the country without a hat, she said, noting that he had always been careful with his hats in the past. Others were talking too, after Stephen had been dropping hints around the town that Russell had died, many began questioning exactly how he could have been so sure. That summer, 
Jesse bought a new patch of land in East Manchester, and Stephen, deciding to spread his wings, up sticks and moved to a farm in Dorset, another Vermont settlement north of Manchester. Stephen quickly found Dorset to be not entirely welcoming, however, and he was forced to explain himself to several people who accused him outright of killing Russell, a rumour that had wound its way up the batting kill several months before his arrival. Stephen reassured everyone who broached the subject with him that it was categorically untrue and that Russell had simply walked off into the woods. Stephen didn't last much longer in Dorset. The Vermont weather in 1815 and 16 proved to be difficult for any farmer and would have been especially bad for a new farmer trying to establish himself. Savage frosts wrecked crops throughout the spring and deep into the summer. It was practically a year-long winter that pushed many out of the area and along with them, Stephen, who had never really settled on his new farm, who once again sold up in January of 1817 and moved further west to the settlement of Denmark in Lewis County, New York, 200 miles from Manchester. When Stephen returned to Manchester in the spring of 1819, it was to an atmosphere that had changed dramatically in his absence. By now, Russell had been missing for seven years, and most people were ready to accept that he had not simply gone off walking in the woods, nor had he joined the army. People were asking questions now, and some were openly accusing Stephen of murdering Russell. Stephen often became angry at the accusations and insinuations that routinely came his way during his visit, and he protested his innocence strongly over and over again, eventually paying William Wyman a visit, who he suspected of being the man who had been spreading the rumours to clear up any doubts that might arise after he left town and headed back to Denmark. He told him that he had never been on the farm with Russell, and that on the morning of May the 10th, he had been working several miles away. Meanwhile, Jesse had been fighting his own fires, assuring people that he had also been out of town on the morning of Russell's disappearance, working in a blacksmith shop. The problem with both of these alibis was that Thomas Johnson knew them to be untrue, since he had witnessed the argument for himself. Fortunately for them, Johnson had been a long-time friend of the Bournes, and when Stephen visited him to explain that Russell had in fact stormed out of the Bourne household later that day never to return, after Sally had cooked him an unsavoury woodchuck for dinner, he accepted the bizarre story of face value. Shortly after, Stephen returned to New York, leaving the whole mess behind him, satisfied that it cleared the air and quashed the rumours. Russell Colvin may have been a relatively poor labourer with scant social status and who some considered mentally challenged. But people had begun talking and when word started to spread round the isolated settlements that his ghost had returned with a story different to the one Stephen had left the town with, it became clear that something needed to be done about it. In April 1819, shortly after Stephen Bourne returned to New York, his uncle, Amos Bourne, had a strange dream. As he lay in the dark, the ghost of Russell Colvin slipped in through his window and silently crept up to his bedside, where he crouched down and whispered into his ear that he wanted to show Amos where he had been buried. In the dream, Amos climbed out of bed and dutifully followed the ghost out into the fields, south towards the burnt-out barn in the old Bournefield, where the spectral visitor stopped and pointed towards the cellar foundations in the corner. This dream repeated three times before Amos decided it was too much to bear and broke his silence. He began telling others of the strange visitations, and soon others began seeing the ghost of Russell Colvin too, 
walking through fields late at night, hovering on the horizon at dusk. Others had similar dreams to Amos, where Russell's ghost accused Stephen and Jesse of murdering him. Within two weeks, the news of the ghostly visitations had reached Manchester Village, and on April 27th, an official investigation into the disappearance of Russell was opened, headed up by the town clerk and Justice of the Peace, Squire Joel Pratt, and the grand juror, Truman Hill. The first steps were to arrest and place Jesse in the Manchester Village Jail, whilst an inquiry was organised to take place in the Congregational Meeting House, the only building large enough to accommodate the large audience who had suddenly, with news of the appearance of his ghost, began to care a lot about Russell Colvin's absence. Jesse was dragged out of his cell to face his initial interrogation, where he simply denied everything. The following day, things were made much more complicated for him, however, after Amos led a group to the cellar in the old Bournefield that he had purportedly been led to by the ghost in his dreams. The designated digger, Abel Pettibone, jumped down into the small foundations, whose opening stood about three and a half by four feet, and slammed his shovel into the loose soil. After a good time digging, he had uncovered a handful of items that had lit a fuse within the crowds that watched on. There was a handful of broken crockery that was promptly discarded, along with a few animal bones. But more interestingly, was an old coat button with the pattern of a flower in the centre and a pair of rusted knives. Both of these were unearthed and handed over to the officials, and everything was immediately carted over to the Bournes for identification, where Sally confirmed that she was pretty sure that the button came from Russell's coat and that one of the knives had belonged to Russell. The next day, Lewis Colvin, Russell's son, now 17 years old, who had witnessed the fight on the morning of his father's disappearance, was questioned. Curiously, he failed to mention any fight at all, only that he had seen Stephen and Jesse argue with his father before he had ran off home, leaving all three men in the field, and that he had not seen nor heard from his father since. With no conclusive evidence against the Bourne brothers, the following day the inquiry was in motion to be wrapped up, and Jesse was due to be released but for some members of the inquiry, it had proved an entirely unsatisfactory conclusion. Truman Hill especially thought that there was much more to the story, and not wanting to let it go quite yet, he visited Thomas Johnson at 10am on Saturday morning, hours before Jesse's release, and persuaded him to visit the prison as a last throw at the dice. Johnson was let into Jesse's cell and left for some time. Whatever words passed between the two men is a mystery, but when Hill returned to collect Johnson, he found Jesse much agitated and with a new story to tell. Now, Jesse told the officials, he had recognised Russell's knife during the inquiry and that his brother Stephen, during his recent visit, had told him that whilst they were having the argument on the morning of May the 10th, he had given Russell a blow and had laid him aside where no one would find him. If this wasn't revelation enough, Jesse then told Hill that he was pretty sure he knew approximately where Russell was buried and it would be happy to take him there. The next day, on Sunday the 2nd of May, a search was organised, and with the news quickly spreading of Jesse's statement concerning his brother, a huge crowd turned out to get involved. The group searched the area from the Bourne Field to the foot of the mountains, upturning every tree stump and clawing through every cellar. But contrary to Jesse's confidence in knowing the burial site, nothing was found. During the day, another lead had been thrown out by a young man from East Manchester who had come across some bones in an old birch stump out by the banks of the Battenkill whilst walking his dog behind the old Bournefield. And a second group, including Squire Pratt and Amos Bourne, 
took off to see if they could find it. A birch stump matching the description was found, and when it was overturned, a small pile of fire-damaged bones were uncovered, along with a small collection of toenails. A group of four physicians were enlisted to identify the bones, and after gaining permission from a local man who had lost a leg to dig up his dismembered limb in order for them to make a comparison, a conclusion was reached that the bones were, much to everyone's great disappointment, not from a human. This was despite the fact that, before the comparison, three of the four doctors were convinced that it was. The toenails were certainly weird, but they weren't really proof of anything. But still, it was enough for the officials to issue a warrant for Stephen's arrest, and that evening, Truman Hill was dispatched to New York to collect the prisoner, along with two other men. The journey took three days, and once they arrived, the small party enlisted help from the local law enforcement to ensure that they could capture Stephen cleanly. His house was surrounded before Truman Hill strode in and announced his intentions to take Stephen back to Manchester. Much to his relief, all of the precautions had proved unnecessary, and Stephen submitted peacefully to being locked up in manacles and tossed on the back of a horse. Hill handed Stephen's wife a small sum of cash to tide her over in her husband's absence, and doffing his hat, the group set off back towards Manchester, prisoner in hand. Hill and Stephen arrived back in Manchester on Saturday the 15th of May, and no sooner had they dismounted from their horses was the inquiry reopened. Both brothers, <coughs> both brothers, Jesse and Stephen, were urged to confess all that had happened on the morning of the argument, but instead they denied any knowledge of anything, and even worse for the officials, Jesse retracted his old statement. A vote was taken, which made the decision to hold both brothers in jail until a grand jury hearing could be arranged. In an example of just how far public opinion of the Bournes had fallen since the appearance of Colvin's ghost, Jesse and Stephen's mother was excommunicated from church the following Sunday for trying to provide a false alibi for her sons in a swift process that ordinarily would have taken weeks, if not months. That night, Barney was also arrested as an accessory to murder, though, after a grilling, he was released. Having both the chief suspects in prison already was a good position for the officials, but the problem they had was that they had no solid evidence tying them to the murder, and as the weeks and months passed and nothing new came to light, it dawned on them that their best possible hope of securing any sort of conclusion would be to encourage the brothers to confess. Jesse and Stephen were separated, and Stephen was placed in heavy manacles, chaining him to the ground, whilst Jesse was placed in a cell with a man named Silas Merrill, who had been arrested for perjury. Merrill had been promised lenient treatment if he could extract any information about the murder from Jesse, which, perhaps unsurprisingly, had great success. Merrill soon told Hill that Jesse had woken him one night, trembling in fear after being visited by a spectral vision of Russell Colvin that had glided in through his window. Following this visitation, Jesse apparently went on to tell Silas that he had been collecting stones in the field with Stephen and Russell when a brawl had broken out and Stephen had broken Russell's skull, sinking him to the floor where blood gushed out. Shortly after, Barney Bourne arrived at the field and seeing the lifeless Russell sprawled out on the ground, asked the brothers if he was dead. Stephen confirmed that he was still alive and after he had clung on to life throughout the afternoon, Barney decided enough was enough and slit his throat with Stephen's penknife. The three men then buried his body in the cellar foundations originally, though they were forced to dig it back up and rebury him under the floor of the barn, which they mistakenly thought would be a safer spot. After the barn had burnt down, they once more removed the remains of Russell, 
ground them up and tossed them into the batten kill, discarding the larger fragments in an old birch stump nearby. It was a tantalising story with many ends that on first investigation did seem to loosely add up. But Jesse and Stephen continued to deny it all, with Jesse adamant that he had never told any such thing to Merrill, who he was sure was making it all up in order to benefit his own incarceration. By midsummer, things were becoming desperate for the Manchester officials, who found themselves under increasing pressure to solve the case and prosecute the Bourne brothers, who by this point, most everyone had decided were guilty of murder, especially in the more rural East Manchester area where the ghost of Russell Colvin had already provided enough proof of such. For the new elite in Manchester Village, however, more evidence was required. In fact, for these men, evidence was doubly necessary in order for them to prove across the town that supernatural evidence was an irrelevance in a serious investigation, taking place in the ordered and enlightened society that they sought to bring to the wider Manchester. To them, the Bourne brothers were a representation of the old Manchester, and they were desperate for a conviction, not only to quell the public outrage, but as part of their ongoing culture war, in which they were seeking to establish a new moral authority. Finally, after months of being chained to the floor of his prison cell, Stephen coughed up the confession that everyone had been so hungry for. Squire Pratt, Truman Hill and Calvin Sheldon, the town magistrates, were called in to drag Stephen down to the courthouse where he wrote and signed his confession before official witnesses. May the 10th, 1812. I, about 9 or 10 o'clock, went down to David Glaze's bridge and I fished down below Uncle Nathaniel Bourne's and then went up across their farms where Russell and Lewis was, being the nighest way, and sat down and began to talk. And Russell told me how many dollars benefit he had been to the father and I told him he was a damned fool and he was mad and jumped up and we sat close together and I told him to set down you little Tory, and there was a piece of beech limb about two feet long and he catched it up and struck at my head as I sat down and I jumped up and it struck me on one shoulder and I catched it out of his hand and struck him a backhanded blow, I being on the north side of him and there was a knot on it about an inch long. As I struck him, I did think I hit him on his back and he stooped down and that knot was broken off sharp and it hit him on the back of the neck close in his hair and it went in about half an inch on that great cord and he fell down. And then I told the boy to go down and come up with his Uncle John. And he asked me if I had killed Russell. And I told him no, but he must not tell that we struck one another. And I told him when he got away down, Russell was gone away. And I went back and he was dead. And then I went and took him and put him in the corner of the fence by the cellar hole. And put briars over him and went home and went down to the barn and got some boards. And when it was dark, I went down and took a hoe and boards and dug a grave as well as I could. I took out of his pocket a little barlow knife with about half the blade and cut some bushes and put it on his face and on the boards and put it in the grave and put him in four boards on the bottom and on the top and two other on the sides and then I covered him up and went home crying along but I wasn't afraid as I know on. Several months later, Stephen dug up the remains of Russell after he had noticed that the ground in the cellar had been disturbed and reburied them in a basket under the floor of the barn where they stayed until it was burnt down by Rufus Colvin. The next day, or the next day but one, I came down and went to the barn and there was a few bones. And when they was to dinner, I told him I did not want my dinner. And I went and I took them. And there weren't only a few of the biggest of the bones. And I throwed them in the river above Wyman's and then went back. And it was done quick too. Stephen scraped up the remainder of the bones and dumped them in the tree stump by the river during a fishing trip that same weekend. All told, it was a pretty wild confession. Importantly, 
Stephen made sure to not only remove Jesse from the story entirely, but he also laid out the fight in such a way that implied manslaughter and self-defence rather than premeditated murder. But after months of trying, it was the best the officials had. A month later, the grand jury hearing kicked off in front of Judge Joel Doolittle, where Stephen would stand trial for murder on the 26th of September, 1819. While Stephen's confession had been pretty damning, Calvin Sheldon, the state attorney prosecuting the case at the grand jury hearing, chose not to present it as evidence. Instead, deciding to focus on Silas Merrill's story, that they had supposedly eked out of Jesse whilst they were both in prison. Silas's story was obviously much more damning than Stephen's testimony, and crucially, it implicated both brothers. Stephen was charged with murder, whereby he feloniously, willfully, and of his malice afterthought, struck and killed Russell Colvin, whilst Jesse was charged with feloniously, willfully, and of his malice afterthought, was present aiding and helping, abetting, comforting, assisting and maintaining Stephen Bourne in the felony of murder. The section of Silas's story mentioning Barney Bourne slitting Russell's throat was discarded entirely, with the prosecution being doubtful of its truth. At the end of the day, both Bourne brothers were scheduled to stand trial at the October sessions with the Supreme Court justices, kicking off on Tuesday the 27th of October in the meeting house of Manchester Village in front of a crowd of almost 600 people who had swarmed to the trial from across Manchester and the surrounding towns with great excitement. In the run-up to the trial, both brothers were able to secure the services of Richard Skinner to defend them, an attorney who, at the age of 41, had already had a distinguished career behind him, having been both elected to Congress and as an Associate Justice on the Vermont Supreme Court. Skinner was a nice catch for the Bourne brothers, and if anything proved that they would need all of his expertise and good reputation to help them out in court, it was the difficulty that was found in assembling the jury, given that so many were already familiar with the case and had already formed opinions against the brothers. Finally, once a suitable jury was put together, the indictments were read out and the brothers both pleaded not guilty. Since no body had actually been found, the prosecution's first job was to firmly establish that Russell was actually dead before they could steer the jury towards accepting that he had been murdered. The prosecution called Skinner himself to the stand as their first prosecution witness in order to have him describe Sally's identification of the coat button and knife that had been dug up in the set of ruins. It was a pretty solid power move on behalf of the prosecution and it forced Skinner into a difficult situation right from the off and things never really recovered. Truman Hill was called to relay his story of how Jesse had told him of his belief that he knew roughly where Russell was buried and then Thomas Johnson told the court of how he had watched the argument on the Bourne field from the colour of the woods around 400 feet away. In one of the more damning statements, Lewis Colvin told of how he had seen Stephen knock Russell to the ground after being hit by Stephen and then of how the brothers had visited him two days after the fight and threatened him that if he had ever told anyone about what he had seen, that they would kill him. When Silas Merrill told his story of hearing Stephen's tale of the murder in prison, he added the new information that Stephen had only agreed to the confession in order to purposefully remove Jesse from the picture and lessen the charge to manslaughter. In the one bright light for the defence, the written confession was thrown out of evidence after it was clear that considerable pressure had likely been used in order to coerce it out of Stephen. When the defence presented their own case, they focused fairly heavily on calling witnesses to the stand who could testify that Russell often wandered off alone and left town on his own accord, including Sally, who confirmed her husband's behaviour. 
They also capitalised on the discarded confession, pushing that all of the confessions and statements made by the brothers whilst in prison were coerced and pressured, either through poor treatment or the false promise of leniency and pardon. When summarising the case for the jury, the prosecution pushed them towards a decision of premeditated murder with intent and that the circumstantial evidence that existed in the case was adequate to secure a proper and just conviction. Unsurprisingly, the defence argued the complete opposite, that there was no evidence of guilt, nor was there even evidence that Russell had been murdered or even died at all. The only proof, they argued, was that Russell, Stephen and Jesse had had an argument, and that meant absolutely nothing. The cellar was far too small for a body to be concealed in, and they also argued that many knives were often alike. Despite everything, it was actually quite a spirited effort from Skinner, but it was soon shown to be all for nothing, when the jury returned a unanimous guilty verdict for both Jesse and Stephen. The judge ordered them to be taken back to jail until January the 28th, 1820, when, between the hours of 10 and 2 o'clock, they were to be hanged by the neck until each of them be dead, and may the Lord have mercy on their souls. Following the trial of Stephen and Jesse Bourne, a small portion of the public opinion, which up until the trial had almost exclusively been against the brothers, slowly began to shift. A petition was drawn up to relieve both of the brothers' death sentences to life imprisonment instead. Jesse secured 26 signatories, though Stephen was less fortunate, securing only nine. On the 12th of November, the petition was debated at the Vermont General Assembly, where a large majority voted to reduce Jesse's sentence to life at hard labour, whilst a reasonably large majority voted to maintain Stephen's sentence of hanging. Desperate and at a loss for anything else to do, Stephen came up with a plan to advertise in the newspapers, appealing for anyone with information on the whereabouts of Russell Colvin to come forward. The advert, drafted on the 25th of November and first published five days later, slowly disseminated out across the Vermont newspapers and into wider circulation. Murder. Printers of newspapers throughout the United States are desired to publish that Stephen Bourne, of Manchester, in Vermont, is sentenced to be executed for the murder of Russell Colvin, who has been absent about seven years. Any person who can give information of said Colvin may save the life of the innocent by making immediate communication. Colvin is about five feet five inches high, light complexion, light-coloured hair, blue eyes, about 40 years of age. It was, essentially, a last throw of the dice for Stephen, who had, in all other ways, appeared to have lost hope. Jesse had been removed to Vermont State Prison in order to start his sentence of hard labour, leaving Stephen alone to face his impending execution. Coincidentally, an anonymous subscriber wrote a letter to the Albany Gazette and Daily Advertiser in New York, laying out the Colvin murder case, and though some of the details were somewhat fudged, it did a good enough job of describing the situation that Stephen now found himself in, and incredibly prompted a reply written by a Methodist preacher from New Jersey published on the 10th of December, much in the vein of what Stephen had hoped his advertisement might have achieved. To the editor of the New York Evening Post, Sir, having read in your paper on November the 26th last for the conviction and sentence of Stephen and Jesse Brown of Manchester, Vermont, charged with the murder of Russell Colvin, and from facts which have fallen within my knowledge, and not knowing what facts may have been disclosed on their trial, and wishing to serve the cause of humanity, I would state as follows, which may be relied upon. Some years past, I think between five and ten, a stranger made his appearance in this county, and on being inquired of, said that his name was Russell Colvin, 
which name he answers to at this time. That he came from Manchester, Vermont, he appeared to be in a state of mental derangement, but at times gave considerable account of himself, his connections, acquaintances, etc. He mentions the name of Clarissa, Rufus, etc. Among his relations, he has mentioned the Browns above. Chase as judge, I think, etc., etc. He is a man rather small in stature, round-favoured, speaks very fast, has two scars on his head, and appears to be between 30 and 40 years of age. There is no doubt but that he came from Vermont, from the mentions he has made of a number of places and persons there, and probably is the person supposed to have been murdered. He is now living here, but so completely insane as not to be able to give any satisfactory account of himself, but the connections of Russell Colvin might know by seeing him. If you think proper to give this a place in your columns, it may possibly lead to a discovery that may save the lives of innocent men. If so, you will have the pleasure, as well as myself, of having served the cause of humanity. If you will give this an insertion in the paper, pray be as to request the different editors of newspapers in New York and Vermont to give it a place in theirs. I am, sir, with sentiments of regard, yours, etc., Tabor Chadwick. Published and distributed across New York, Chadwick's letter was read by thousands, including James Welpley, a tavern owner who had formerly lived in Manchester and recognised all of the names involved. Curious, he endeavoured to track down the preacher, and upon meeting him, discovered that Colvin had been working as a labourer on Chadwick's sister's farm since his arrival from Manchester. The pair headed over to Chadwick's sister's farm and met her husband, William Pole Emmers, who confirmed that Russell was working for him, though he had long since changed his name. He said he had always been quiet about his past and that he had thought him somewhat deranged, but that he had always been a good and honest worker. Welpley and Chadwick waited for Russell return to the farmhouse and when he did, Welpley greeted him, calling him Colvin. The man gave him what he described as a sharp look before telling him that he was another man now. That evening, Welpley and Chadwick continued to question the man about his past and when they asked him about how he had received the scars on his head, he told them that he had received them whilst chopping on the mountain, working for a man that Welpley recognised as a Manchester resident from back when he had lived there. By the end of the evening, he was convinced that the man was the genuine Russell Colvin. Welpley asked Colvin to return to Manchester with him, and though he was not particularly keen on the idea at first, he eventually submitted to it, and the pair travelled back to New York before riding a stagecoach back to Bennington in Vermont, just south of Manchester. It had been a long, fairly uncomfortable ride, but they finally arrived in Bennington on the 22nd of December to a great deal of excitement. Word of the discovery of Colvin had spread quickly. Chadwick had sent a letter ahead describing his discovery, and newspapers that reported on the story had slowly filled out across to Manchester. At first, people were sceptical, convinced that he had been murdered, but as more articles were printed, slowly the belief grew. By the time Colvin arrived in Vermont, most were anxious to learn the truth for themselves not least Stephen, who had been notified of the discovery, but was doing his best to temper his enthusiasm. Once Colvin and Welpley were able to step into the Bennington streets, they were surrounded by excited onlookers, several of whom Russell was able to greet by name. Thrilled to confirm that the genuine article had returned, a messenger was sent to Manchester, and after several hours, the pair made their way to Manchester for Colvin's triumphant return. As expected, the scene in Manchester was just like in Bennington. People crowded around them as they arrived, filling the street outside the tavern. In a dramatic moment, Stephen was brought from his prison cell and everyone watched on as the two men met in the street. When Colvin saw Stephen's chains, he asked him why he was locked up. 
and Stephen replied that he had been got for murdering him. Colvin's reply cut through the palpable tension that hung over the street. You never hurt me, he said. Jesse struck me with a briar once, but it didn't hurt me much. Wild celebrations broke out. Stephen was unlocked and the town's cannons fired off, booming into the evening air. The celebrations continued for two days for what the locals were calling God's providential intervention. And suddenly, everyone in town seemed to forget that just weeks earlier, they were all baying for the Bourne brothers' blood. Most people seemed to think that Colvin's mental derangement had gotten much greater since he had left, but otherwise, they were sure he was the right man. He seemed to have a strong memory for his time in Manchester, calling people by name and recalling events that had happened during his time there. Sometimes, however, he did seem to suffer bouts of amnesia. Most curiously were the moments where he didn't seem to recognise his own children, and his attitude towards Sally, who he blanked, telling people that he wanted nothing more to do with her. But most just assumed that this was his derangement playing up, and they only saw it as more proof that the man was truly Russell Colvin. A formal inquiry was hastily assembled in the tavern, led by Squire Pratt, and Colvin was able to relay several anecdotes about the town that helped convince any of the remaining doubters. After a week of celebrations and minor celebrity, Colvin took his leave, saying that he had grown to miss his life in New York and that he was eager to return. With everyone convinced that Russell Colvin was alive and well, the Supreme Court had a new problem on their hands, that of how to overturn the Bourne brothers' sentences. Eventually, a new trial was called under the grounds that new evidence had been discovered and the state offered no prosecution, leaving a tribunal to declare that the men officially were free. Both brothers petitioned the state for financial support following their poor treatment in jail, but both were roundly ignored. Stephen moved to Dorset shortly after his release, then on to New York, and eventually he settled in Burton, Ohio. Jesse eventually wound up joining his brother after a winding journey, bouncing from place to place. Stephen led a quiet life until his death in the 1850s, whilst Jesse picked up a more exciting living, working with a gang on a counterfeiting enterprise. In 1860, he was approached by a man, calling himself Hackett, who told him he was interested in joining a gang, and Jesse took him under his wing, sounding him out and doing his due diligence before coughing up any information regarding the gang. During the time they spent getting to know one another, Jesse boasted to Hackett about how he and his brother had once killed a man 40 years earlier. In a dramatic retelling of events, he told them of how an imposter from New Jersey, who they had conspired with and paid to impersonate Colvin, had strode into town whilst they were on the scaffold, nooses around their necks, and saved them from their impending doom, just in the nick of time. Shortly after, the gang was busted by Hackett, who had been working as an undercover US Marshal, and Jesse, who now denied everything about the murder once more, was jailed for five years in the Ohio State Penitentiary. With the courts effectively reversing the sentences for the Bourne brothers, the story of the Colvin non-murder case was wrapped up neatly enough for most people, though it did raise important legal questions on the strength of circumstantial evidence in court, especially in cases where no evidential foundation existed in the first place. There were other questions too, however, even long before Jesse's arrest in 1860 and his final confession, the biggest of which was trying to figure out what exactly happened on the morning of May 10th, 1812 in the first place. If we assume that Russell Colvin really did return from New York and that the brothers really hadn't killed him, then why had they both given up confessions saying that they had? 
had they just assumed that he had died after leaving him with heavy injuries, and by confessing were they hoping to lessen their sentences? Or were the confessions more heavily extorted than anyone first thought? Interestingly, the question of how much pressure the officials put upon Jesse and Stephen to confess was never really broached after the trials in order to avoid embarrassing the officials. It was certainly true that, at the very least, the officials offered the brothers leniency in their treatment if they confessed, and they also offered the same to Silas for extracting a statement from Jesse. Is it so hard to believe that they were perhaps more heavy-handed than their outwardly moralistic and ethical philosophies would have had people believe? On the other hand, if they really did kill Russell, then the obvious question was who came to Manchester to rescue Stephen from the noose, and was it all a complicated conspiracy? One of the most obvious challenges to this theory is that Jesse and Stephen were relatively poor, which is true to an extent, but whilst the Bourne family in general were only a middling family in Manchester, they were not exactly cash-strapped either. One good example of their means was evident in their ability to secure Richard Skinner to defend their case in court, a well-respected attorney whose services would not have come cheap. There was also the fact that in 1819, one of the Bourne brothers had paid $2,000 for some land, quite a large sum at the time, and it was a parcel that only added to the Bourne's already significant farm holdings. In his book on the case, author Gerald McFarland suggests that a total of around $750 would have been necessary to pay off everyone involved in the scheme, a total which the family should easily have been able to gather. Possibly the bigger question against this theory is what motivation would the New Jersey contingent have had to help the Bournes, and how would they have managed to assemble them in the first place, particularly at such short notice? In fact, the Welkley and Bourne families had a relatively long history together. Both had been early settlers in Manchester, where they had been political associates. Both had helped to found the Baptist Church, and as recently as 1809, they had been selling land to one another at discounted rates, so it's clearly true that they were at least on friendly terms. Welpley had left Manchester and started a tavern in New York, but it was in financial trouble by 1820, and the cash that he took in order to carry off an imposter conspiracy was perhaps just the earner that he would have needed to keep things afloat. Would an imposter really have been able to fool everyone in Manchester, though? After a seven-year absence, coaching the imposter would perhaps not have been such a difficult job, especially with the caveat to fall back on that he was, at times, deranged and prone to saying confusing things. However, no one in Manchester believed the imposter theory at the time, and even less so in 1860 after Jesse's confession to Hackett, which many thought was just an old criminal boasting about his past in order to impress a young upstart. Some were against it so vehemently that they even suggested that Jesse and the gang was the real imposter. Was this just a form of denial that they had been fooled, or had Chadwick and Welpley done such a brilliant job at coaching the imposter? The argument against the imposter theory is simply the fact that it would have had to have been such an incredibly fast and slick operation that it almost seems impossible to pull off without so much as a single hitch. One of the most talked about aspects of the case after the trial was, unsurprisingly, the involvement of Russell's ghost. The supernatural element helps propagate the story due to its sensational nature, much to the distaste of Manchester officials who were keen to publish rebuttals, ensuring that no evidence gleaned from the ghost made it into any trial. In fact, the officials had been keen to push out any mention of the ghost from the official record entirely. But did it really exist, or at least, did people really think they saw it, even in dreams? It seems likely that Amos Bourne 
not willing to be seen to throw his family under the bus, had concocted the ghost story in order to deflect the accusations away from himself. If this is true, was it simply that he had information on the case and used the ghost as a vehicle to steer it to the right people? After Amos's initial sightings, several other people said they also saw the ghost or were visited by Russell's spirit, but were they too just using the ghost as a convenient vehicle or was it a case of localised hysteria? These questions were all asked at the time and the theory that Amos was simply using the ghost story as cover was actually reasonably popular. So was Jesse just bragging to hack it? Is a conspiracy really that unlikely? Surely the events, if really played out just as the officials accepted back in 1820, then the conclusion would have been just as miraculous as any completion of a tall conspiracy. If it's possible to believe one, then why not believe the other? Thanks to its importance as a case in American law, the Colvin case will continue to be told and debates continue to be had. But ultimately, the truth of what happened on the farm that morning has all but died long ago. So that was the story of Russell Colvin's return from the dead. I hope you enjoyed it. There is a fair old bit to talk about. We'll try and keep it brief, but we'll talk about some of it after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Just for a second, have a little stop of what you're doing and have a think of how much time you spend on yourself every given week and how much time exactly do you give to other people? And how do you balance the two? It can be really easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you and never take a moment to think about what you need from yourself. But when we do spend all of our time giving, it can leave us feeling stretched thin and a bit burnt out. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. BetterHelp is an online therapy. Uh, I've been using it for a while. Um, if you are interested in online therapy, all I can say is I've only found it a really positive experience the whole time I've used it. I've been to therapists a few times in my life, but what I find really interesting this time is I joined BetterHelp really just to check it out. And so I came at it without having like a real big reason to go. And actually, I feel like that's been a really positive experience for me, um, just sort of being able to explore smaller things that were maybe gnawing away at me without me even really realising. It's entirely online, so it's really quite convenient. I mean, that's basically what it was. It was designed to be convenient and flexible, and that's exactly what it is. Uh, you know, you, you can book in a slot that fits your schedule. You don't even need to leave your house, which can be really, really helpful for a lot of people. And it certainly is for me. Things like going to a therapist's office could, for example, trigger a lot of anxiety. With BetterHelp, it's just all online. So, you know, you don't even have to take your slippers off if you don't want to. All you do is you fill out a, a little brief sort of intro questionnaire when you sign up that runs you through, um, you know, like what, what you might be looking to get out of therapy and, and who you are. And uh, they, they match you with a licensed therapist. You don't have to accept the match if you don't want to. And if you do and you decide that that therapist isn't for you, you can switch to a new therapist anytime for no additional charge. So if you were thinking of uh, going to see a therapist or maybe talking to someone about issues you have in or, or just to sort of like, say, try and empower yourself a little bit, then you can definitely do worse than uh, give BetterHelp a try. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash darkhistories today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash darkhistories, all one word. Cheers.
welcome back. Yeah, so the Colvin case. This is a really interesting case. I've had this on the back burner for a really long time, actually, for about four series. Um, but it's so it's really good to sort of finally get into it and, and do it because uh, I always knew that it was a really interesting case to get into. I first heard of it, obviously, as you might imagine, because of the ghost in the story. And that sort of intrigued me enough to start digging. But then I sort of dug past that and found that actually the story behind it is, is just as interesting as the ghost, if not much more so. Um, and in fact, the ghost sort of takes a fairly back seat in it. Anyway, what do you think happened? Me personally... Now, I've, I, I'm pretty convinced that they killed Russell Colvin on that morning. And I'm pretty sure also that a lot of people knew about this. And this sort of winds back to a part in the story where Rufus Colvin burnt down the barn. Now, interestingly, this is rarely talked about. But why did Rufus burn down the barn? Like, he, it's, it's never really touched upon as to why he did it. Was he just a wayward child that likes burning things? He didn't get done for any other cases of arson. So why that barn? That really makes me think that Rufus Colvin, young as he was, had heard the rumours and wanted to expose it. And I think the rumours that he'd heard was that his dead dad was buried under that barn's floor. So he burnt it down. I, I think that's the reason he burnt it down. I, I, why else would a young kid just burn a house down? It, it makes no sense for anyone just to go and burn a barn down. So I, I think... He definitely burnt that barn down for a reason. And I think it was to try and expose the Bournes. And this is sort of leads me on to the other points. I think that that, 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 that Stephen and Jesse killed uh, Russell. I think it's the po- most poorly kept secret in the area, basically. I think the way Manchester was laid out was you had like the Manchester village and Manchester centre where a lot of people lived. And then outside of that, you had like all these little satellite communities. And I think in their particular satellite community... This was the most poorly kept secret. I think everyone in that local area knew that they killed them. And I think they all knew the details of how they killed them. And I'll I'll come back to that in a second. And I think rumours slowly spread out to everywhere else. And that's where things got a little corrupted and a little changed. But when you look at other rumours, too many people seem to know too much about the story. They seem to be able to guess quite well that, you know, he was buried in the corner of the cellar and that he was uh, buried under the barn and put, put in this tree stump. Too many of these stories are just too many coincidences. I think they all knew the rumours and I think all of the stories are embellishments to those rumours to create a more coherent story. And that's what was presented. For example, Merrill's story in prison. I think he presented to them a embellishment of rumours that had been circulating for some time. And I think that's why he almost very nearly nails the truth. I don't think Jesse really did give that. And I don't think Jesse saw Russell Colvin's ghost. I think he did make up that story. I think I think Silas Merrill made up that story to get lenient treatment. But I think he based the story on the rumours. And that's why it was so close to the actual truth. Which brings us then to the next question of if we believe that he was murdered then who was the imposter and and what what was going on there and i think again it's very true that they could have got an imposter i think it's quite i think it is a difficult thing to have achieved to have tracked down this imposter and coached him and got him back in time and 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 everything to have just gone off without a hitch but 
I think it's too much of a coincidence that they made a point of him being deranged and more so deranged since he had left. And I think that's just too much of a convenient excuse. Every time he got something wrong or said something weird, I think people could just instantly say, oh, yeah, it's because he's deranged. You know, that's because he's like mentally challenged or whatever. And uh, I think that it's just too convenient of an excuse. I think that was their cover. I think they coached him and I think they covered for it his mistakes by giving him the catch-all that he was, you know, uh, you know, in, insane or whatever they could. They called him, in, I mean, they called him all sorts. They called him insane, deranged, you know, uh, several things like that. So I think they just used that as a catch-all to cover everything. I'm quite sure of the conspiracy. I'm all in on the conspiracy in this case. I, I, I genuinely think they would. I think that's why he, he refused his wife. Now, there is another reason. You know, he he might have refused his wife because she had two children since he left and he obviously didn't have a particularly great relationship. So there are, you know, there, 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 maybe he just sort of snubbed his wife for that and maybe he didn't recognise his children because they'd grown a lot older. That's two things, you know, that, that that would be the two arguments against those very two obvious plot points to me which show that he was an imposter. I personally, don't, I think he would have recognised his children even though they'd grown seven years older. I think he still would have recognised his children. And I think he blanked his wife because he knew that she, he had to keep her at arm's length to keep up the imposter theory because if he let anyone that knew him too well get too close, they would have found out that he was an imposter. Now, you might be thinking, like, oh, but how did everyone just believe that it was him if it wasn't him you know wouldn't that have been obvious and and i would say yeah fair enough it's a good question and i i that was my initial questions as well but then i started thinking about about other stories i've done for dark histories where people have been imposters years later in like the 19th century and somehow managed to pull it off quite well and it seemed to be not that much of a rare thing for someone to come back 10 20 years after a case and just pull off being imposter perfectly well without even being that close when we look at the Tichborne claimant for example they didn't even look physically the same I mean there was just so much different there yet they managed to pull it off and I know in that case there was a degree of emotional attachment going on that you know with the family that especially his mother that, that could have helped that along but I still think he managed to pull it off with other people purely because they, they just didn't seem to recognize that it wasn't him then there's other cases as well in Victorian England of, of similar things happening. I won't give away too much because I know at least one of them will definitely be a future his, a future episode of Dark Histories. But there are other examples of this happening in the 19th century. So I don't think it's that much to uh, much of a stretch to think that the people of Manchester just didn't get it right and and just just bought the fact that it was him. I think back in those days, I think when you were presented with a version of the truth that seemed to match up with everything that you believed. You just accepted it. I think it was maybe like a, to call it a simpler time is maybe not right, but I think it was a bit easier to accept things at face value back then. And I think that's the case here. And I think that wraps up this case quite neatly. I definitely think they killed him. The argument against it, I guess, is that their confessions were not really right. And, you know, uh, where did they come from? The confessions were almost definitely extorted, I think. Um, and I think that's probably why they're wrong. I think they were more or less just telling the the officials just what they wanted to hear. And I think they were treated very bad, badly. And that, and that and the you know 
they not only were pressured by t- telling them, oh, we'll, we'll treat you better, you know, we'll treat you with leniency in the trial if you confess. I think they were, I mean, Stephen was apparently like manacled to the floor uh, with chains for months. Um, you know, that that's not a situation that anyone wants to be in. It, you can only imagine that he didn't eat or drink very well during that time. And you, you assume that his treatment was pretty bad, right? So, yeah, I, I think for me that that, wraps up this case quite neatly i think they definitely killed him i think it was actually very well known in the area i think the reason it wasn't actually put to trial sooner was just because people didn't care because they were a sort of rural family out in the sticks who were not so well off anymore and and didn't really have much social influence And, and i think this new elite group that moved in i just don't think they really cared about those types of people i think they saw those types of people as a blight on Manchester, I think they saw it as a as a sort of a reminder of the past that they were trying to move away from, and they just saw those people as like a simple blight. And I think that's why they just didn't care. I think the only reason they did put it to trial was when people started talking about the ghost, and it seemed to get traction. I think as soon as that got traction, they had to quash it, and so they went, "Okay, fine, we'll have an inquiry now." And I, I think actually the fact that they killed him was locally good knowledge. I think everyone knew that. And so that's my theory. If you have a different theory or if you agree or disagree, you can get in touch. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email. Or you can get in touch via social media. That's All the links for that is in the show notes and also on darkhistories.com where you will find all the ways to contact me, uh, links to the community over on Discord, if you want to join that, ways to support the show, uh, which is mainly Patreon, um, but there are other ways of supporting the show as well. And they're not all financial if you can, you know, help with, uh, you know, like leaving a rating and review. I mean, actually, Dark Issues has nearly got like 2,000 ratings now, which is incredible. And I'm, you know, so pleased it's taken like seven, six years to get those 2,000 uh, reviews, but that's just, that's incredible. There's 2,000 people that have taken, you know, five minutes out of their day to, to, to help me out. So, you know, if you, if you, if you can do that, that's great. Um, but yeah, there's links to all the different ways that you can support the show and also to the merch shop and to the books and things like that. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks. I hope you really enjoyed this episode and look forward to the next one. Until then, take care. Sleep tight.